showed in there is the auto on, auto off. <clears throat> okay, so uh, we're uh, this is uh, night three on our on our study on uh, manuscript evidence and uh, for main primarily for discipleship two. Uh, for the students that are in discipleship too, but anybody here on Wednesday night is also part of our Wednesday night rotating cycle of, of uh, topics that we try to teach on occasionally. And so one, what I want uh, for you guys, for anybody that's here, uh, is to get, the, um, to, get a, to get a grip on uh, the Bible, you know, the, the, uh, the actual Word of God, in particular the King James Bible, and um, so this is not going to, we're not going to cover everything that I would cover in, in, in uh, Shepherd School or HBI, um, the Bible Institute. Uh, but uh, this is a, a, just enough to get you started. And so uh, last week and the week before we were in, we were looking at some, some introductory type stuff and looking at some, uh, some um, the starting to talk about the doctrine of preservation and I do apologize for last week with the confusion on the notes. Um, and uh, there's so much material that I have that I, it's hard to decide yes or no on what do I teach in this little segment here. And, um, and so I tried to add some, uh, some sections in there, and it kind of got my pages out of sequence with your pages. And so um, anyway, we got kind of out of sequence. So I'm going to try to be on the page where you're at uh, this, this tonight anyway. And depending on how fast we go, so we got tonight, next week as well, and then depending on how far along I make it, I may add additional subject that I think would be beneficial, but we'll see what happens at the end. And so I'm not going to try to stuck, stick anything new in the material. It'll be at the end of the material, and there won't be a handout. Okay, so where we're at, we, uh, we like I said, we have talked about... Um, uh, we kind of talked about, and we looked at some quotes of some people talking about the Bible and how they're going to, you know, Thomas Paine said he was going to chop down all the trees and there's no Bible left and all those kind of things. We looked at all those kind of stuff. Uh, so now I want to get to some background about a little bit more. Uh, <clears throat> we talked about that there's the King James Bible and then there's all the other Bibles. So where we're going, to, where did they come from? How did how did how did that happen? I know, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the printing, the print houses, the uh, Bible, the book publishing companies, uh, they, they have making, made a profit on, the, on the, the Christianity by publishing as many Bibles as they can. Well, why do they do that? How do they, how do they decide that? Because they're not King James Bibles. So anyway, I want to tell you that there's a couple of things here. So uh, as we start tonight, we're going to talk about, I'm going to give you some background of the preservation topic. And what I want to mention is that there's two seeds two texts, and two lines of Bible. That's all you got to know about this whole conflict about what Bible is the right Bible. There's two seeds, two texts, and two lines of Bibles. So there's only two seeds that are outwardly similar. There, there, are, there are two seeds that are outwardly similar, but they produce completely different, completely opposing results. These seeds can be seen throughout the Bible. In fact, when you look at the Bible, you can see some seeds. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is the first time you'll see the concept of seeds in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And if you've never been told this before, this is actually the first prophecy in the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 15, where God has come down 
uh, Adam and Eve has sinned. Satan has gotten in the way uh, in the form of a serpent. And God comes down and asks, what are you doing? What have you, what have you done? And so he says in verse 15, when after they've tried to, well, you gave me the woman. Well, the woman blames the serpent and so on and so forth and all that. But okay, God says, okay, enough of that. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Two seeds. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, there's two seeds. And uh, I get another place that you can see this. I think I'm going to echo. I need to drop this mic a little bit. Hang on here. Okay. If you turn to John, the book of John, chapter 4. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. Now, the, the word seed is not here necessarily, but the, but the, the outcome of the seeds are, are found here. And I want to just go down to chapter 8 and verse... Uh, Well, I'm going to go to verse 44, but I may I may start it back a little bit. Now let's go to verse um, 41, and we'll read down to 44. You do the seed, you do the deeds of your father. Then said they unto him, We be not born of fornication; we have but one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither found, neither came I of myself, but he that sent me. He, But he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, that's that's one line, and, you, and, and, uh, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a burner from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When, I, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is the liar and the father of it. The contrast in that whole passage of chapter 8 is Jesus Christ is saying, you are of your seed, the, father, the devil. You're, that's one seed. You're, you're the line of the devil. That's one seed. And Christ is the other seed, and his line is, is the second seed. So it, in Genesis chapter, 5, chapter 3, verse 15, we have two seeds that culminate in two fathers and two, two, two conflicting situations all the time. The devil and Christ, or the devil and God, and so um, these two seeds they produce two sets of texts completely. Now, if you go back and you look at Genesis chapter three again, at the beginning of chapter three, you'll notice that G, that this, that Satan, in the form of that serpent, he he corrupts the word of God right there. He actually corrupts the word of God right there. And we won't go back there for the sake of that. You should already know all of that anyway. Most of you do, if you're in D2 especially. So uh, the two C's produce two sets of texts, which produce two lines of Bibles. One is the, what's called the received text. And I would, I would make a note here, if you want to know what the, how to remember the difference, the received text you receive from God. The received text you receive from God. The other text is not received. So you have a received text, that's one seed line. You have a not seed, not a not received text, that's the second received line or the second seed line. These two lines of text and their corresponding ideologies, and I would say doctrines as well, uh, they originate in vastly different locations on the earth. Very close, but very different. One text comes through Antioch, 
the city Antioch, and the other comes through Alexandria. So you have two cities that are mentioned in the scriptures many times. Uh, Antioch is the first blank. It doesn't matter which blank you use it, but one seed comes from, they come from, one text comes from Antioch, one text comes from Alexandria. And so we see the evidence of this, of this um, when we remember, remember the law of first mention, we talked about a couple weeks ago, and you've heard it many times before, the law of first mention, which teaches that it's generally true that the context in which someone or something is first mentioned in the Bible, it sets the Bible attitude or the Bible definition for that person or that situation or that place or whatever. So the first mention is important. So the first time that we see the word um, Egypt, for example, Egypt is mentioned in a negative context in many different verses. I think I have most of those. No, let's see. There they are. Yeah, there. Egypt is uh, mentioned in a negative context, all of those passages here. But for the sake of uh, time, turn over to Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 to 14. Exodus chapter 1, we'll see a negative context of, of, the, of the place called Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 to 14. Verse, verse 11 says, Therefore they did set them over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But they more afflicted, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. That means hard. They were hard servers. They were slaves. So that's a negative context of Egypt. That's just one place. Uh, So you've got those verses that are listed there. It should be in your notes as well. And you can go back and review all of those, those places that Egypt is a negative context place. In fact, whenever you see Egypt, it is as a, as in the, in the, as a picture of, it's a picture of the world. It's a type of the world. Egypt is the world. That's not a good place. Um, Alexandria is mentioned. So, so Egypt, I'm bringing Egypt because Alexandria is located in Egypt. Uh, Alexandria is mentioned four times in scriptures, and all of them are negative in context as well. Alexandria is a negative thing. The first one we'll turn to, we'll only turn to, is, is Acts chapter 6, verse 9. And you'll see it used in a negative context there as well. Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the, syn- the, the which is called the synagogue of the Libertarians and the, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. So the Alexandrians, the people from Alexandria, were disputing with Stephen, the deacon that was preaching a message of the Christ, of, of Christ, and they're disputing with him. So that's the negative context as well. Flipping that around. Uh, we th- we have Antioch. Antioch is mentioned in a positive context. Anybody know where Antioch is mentioned in the Bible? It's okay. You got the notes right there. You should see that. How about Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-five? We'll go over Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-five. This will this will really show you the contrast between the, a negative and and a positive view of the cities. Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-five. 
Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year that they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's a pretty positive statement about the city of Antioch. And so uh, Alexandria... Uh, Alexandria was the center for is it was at the time a center for education and philosophy, but it got its it's got its education and its philosophy from um, Athens, Greece. So they were so most of their edu- most of their education, most of their thinking, most of their their influences on the world was was uh, from Greek philosophy, not from the Bible, but from Greek philosophy. And what they did was. Uh, for example, there was called a school of the scriptures there that was established by a philosopher by the name of Pantanius who interpreted the Bible as an allegory. The entire Bible, is you guys know what an allegory is? That's a false picture of something to use to try to illustrate some sort of teaching. And in this case, it was all wrong teaching. So he interpreted the entire Bible as an allegory, claiming truth to be relative not believing that men such as Adam and Noah and Moses and David really existed. So he started a school of the scriptures, Bible school, and teaching that the Bible was a, was a picture book. Uh, what, technically, it is a picture book, but his picture book was a, more like a ch- children's story picture book. There's a false story, um, and uh, it was based off of a lot of f- Greek philosophy, and he didn't believe in the key men in the Bible were ever really existed. Followed, by, followed that by a guy by the name of Clement. Clement of Alexandria, he succeeded Pantanius. Uh, and then he, Clement was followed by Origen. You may have heard the name Origen before. He's, he's identified as one of the church fathers. Problem with Alexander, I mean with Origen, we'll talk about him a little bit later. But let me just tell you this right now. He altered the scriptures in a way of his, of, into his way of thinking. And he is the father of what we would call biblical criticism today. This is what he did in the Bible. He deleted 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. He, had, he said that verse, that verse shouldn't exist. He just, he just erased it. He, uh, he erased chapter Acts chapter 8, verse 37. He said, ah, we don't need those verses. You know what both of those verses do? They both teach the truth of God, about God. Acts chapter 8, verse 37 is about, you know, do you need to be baptized before you get saved or not? You know, some some churches teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But if you take that verse out, that's what it says is, do you believe? Then you can be baptized. That's what Philip said to the Ethiopian. And so if you take that verse out, you've got no verse that says you've got to believe before you can get baptized. And so he re- he removed that. So that's, that's origin for you. So... Um, 1 John 5, 7. I'll just turn there real quick for you. I should remember that off the top of my head, but I don't. 1 John 5, 7 says, For these three are, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. He has, he had took that verse out of the Bible. That verse is still out of the Bible in many different versions. It's still not there. It's gone. Acts chapter 8, verse 37, gone. You go, you read in Acts, you go to Acts chapter 35, 36, 38, 
39, completely skipped 37. So anyway, uh, that's, that's, the, that's our wonderful uh, Alexandrian influence. So the Alexandrians' texts were corrupted and their philosophy of Bible correction gave way to a line of texts and ultimately produced what, we would, what I call, what we call, the modern versions. So if it's not a King James Bible, it's, it's ranked in the modern versions uh, category. Antioch, on the, on the other hand of that, Antioch um, was the center of New Testament Christianity, as we read. That was where they first were called Christians, uh, was in the city of Antioch. That's where Paul, Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries from Antioch. Uh, Antioch is a key place for this expansion of Christianity around the world. Alexandria, not so much. Alexandria didn't help with the expansion of Christianity at all. They expanded the the false teaching of the false line, of the false seed, of the false king who wanted to be king, which was Satan. So uh, the first city, Antioch, um, they resisted pagan education. They resisted pagan philosophy. They resisted all of that. They were the first city to be called Christians, as I said. Paul was ordained and sent as a missionary from that city. And in the second century... Uh, a man named Lucian founded a school of the scriptures in Antioch, emphasizing scripture authority and scripture divinity. So there's two schools. I didn't even mention that before. There's a school in Antioch or Alexandria uh, that teaches and tries to intermix on top of the Bible Greek philosophy, and uh, and and then Alec- and Antioch, which started a Bible, which which take, took the Bible and and put that on top of everything else, which is what should happen. So Antioch is the, is the high point or is the point of origin for correct, correct manuscripts and the correct idea, ideology of scripture, scriptural purity. Every Bible on the earth ultimately finds its root. And you, if you took the time to trace out where, these, where every Bible, I don't know how many different versions of the Bible there are, but in English, I'm not talking about other languages, I'm just talking about English for right now. There's probably well over a hundred different English Bibles that you can buy either online or at a bookstore someplace and just go to just go to a bookstore and just look on their wall and see all the Bibles they sell. And they sell all the major ones, the NIV, the ESV, the ASV, the I mean you had three letters put together, you got a Bible. And so um uh there's going to be one. They're either going to be the one, one, one line or the other. The traditional text um, came through. That's another f- word for received text as well. The traditional text came through Antioch in Syria and the Byzantine Empire. And then we get into all of that stuff in the HBI class. We don't. We're not going to take the time to dive into those concepts in in this little short course. But the modern text came from Alexandria in Egypt, and every modern scholar calls them Alexandrian texts. They're actually referred to as Alexandrian texts by many people, although as there's probably fewer today that would call them Alexandrian texts because they know that that's a stigma that identifies them as, as false Bibles. So we have a traditional text by, written by the apostles and the modern text written, written and revised by the Gnostics in Alexandria. And the Gnostic means... Uh, that they're all about knowledge. That they that that their they their their knowledge is more important than God's word. 
So there, there, there may be scribal errors in the traditional text, but there are intentional errors, heretical errors in the modern text. And that's a key point to me. There may be, we, we could probably, and I don't think, personally, I don't think you can find an error in the King James Bible today. But let's say the King James Bible, let's say it's not 1611 anymore. Let's say it's only 1612. Yeah, okay, so maybe the words were spelled wrong when they published them, when they... If you ever tried to put together the type to put it in a in a print and print that, that's not easy. So you maybe get the type upside down, or you get it flipped around, or something. You miss a you miss a letter when you're trying to put the type in the block. So you got to go back and correct it. So maybe there's some of that kind of stuff. Those were unintentional. They were not intended to deceive anybody or to lie to anybody. They were unintentional. But the the, the mistakes. And the change and the errors in the text of the modern text were intentionally put in, like Origen, intentionally removing verses. Sometimes they will put verses in that aren't there, or they will make a verse say something that it doesn't say. That's intentionally deceiving you or any other Christian that's reading that Bible. So, from Antioch uh, and Alexandria... Uh, Come from Antioch are the preserved texts. From Alexandria, they're the corrupted texts. I think that's what goes in your blanks there. Um, so the received text was woven into the spiritual life of Antioch, where the first disciples were called Christians. But then you got the attack of Satan, because Satan is against the Word of God. All the way back from Genesis chapter three, Satan is against the Word of God. Satan hates the preserved text, so he got his agents to corrupt the Bible text. But so many changes that were made by Satan and his his cronies to mutilate and to hide the truth. When Jesus Christ, or when Satan said to said to Eve, "Yea, hath God said," that wasn't like, did he really say that? That's what that's what the, that's the implication of her his question. Did he really say that? Thou shalt not surely die. That's a direct statement that says that God is lying to you. Let me correct him for you. If you eat this tree, you will have all the knowledge that you need. You will be like God. He corrected what God said. He lied about what was said, intentionally lying to deceive her so that, because what God wanted to do was destroy the opportunity for the seed to be, to be generated that would produce the Savior. That's what Genesis, 3 verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is all about. Okay, let me find my place here. So there were many changes that were made by Satan, and he used it as a base, and then he twisted it for his purposes, as in uh, as those passages I just read in Genesis one fifteen, Genesis chapter three, verse one to fifteen five. So Satan used scripture in the temptation of Christ as well. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter four, verses one to eleven. Uh, he he challenged Satan, challenged Jesus Christ. We won't be, we won't take the time to turn back there and read it, but you know he took him up to a hut, to a temple and he looked down and says. You know, if you just worship me, I'll give you all of this stuff. And what did Jesus Christ say? You know, um, he basically said, uh, the word of God will stop you. I don't remember the verses. Well, let's just turn there real quick because that bothers me when I don't remember exactly how it goes. Matthew chapter 4. Satan, or Jesus, was led up to this of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And so let's go down here. Um, verse six, 
If thou will be the son, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. And as, for as it is, for it is written. So he's using the word of God to attack Jesus. For it is written um, that he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hand they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the throne or against the stone. How did Jesus respond in verse seven? It is written, "Thou shalt not tempt the Lord God." So, so he he. Satan is trying to pervert the word to Jesus, who is the living word. And he says, not nah, sorry, you can't do that. And that happened several times. And then, he, then Satan went off and um, cried in his sleep. Okay, so Satan will counterfeit. Uh, let's see, where am I at here? I think I'm a little bit too far. Yeah, that's, I'm one step ahead behind myself, sorry. Satan will counterfeit everything, including the Bible. Satan is the greatest counterfeiter of the Lord Jesus Christ in the universe, and he is going to try to counterfeit everything as much as possible. The only threat, is that there's a blank I didn't miss, the only threat to Satan is the Bible, as we see that passage in Matthew. Okay, so there is a difference. I want to talk real briefly about there is a difference uh, between inspiration and preservation. God gave his revelation. So there's a lot of these words. We, t- we looked at them at the first night. Revelation, um, inspiration, preservation, and scripturation, and all those kind of things. And so God gave his revelation through inspiration. Now, I don't think the sheet that I gave you that have definitions on it have this definition. But inspiration... Inspiration is God breathed the infusion of ideas into the mind of the Holy, uh, by the Holy Spirit. He infused ideas into the mind of the Holy Spirit. So we'll just turn to two passages. You can grab them both. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, and Job chapter 32, verse 8. Let's go to Peter first. We go to 2 Peter chapter... Where do you go? 2 Peter 1, 21. Well, we'll read verse 20 and 21. Knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. How were they moved by the Holy Ghost? Well, that's the, that's the concept of inspiration. Now go back to Job chapter 32, verse 8. Job 32.8. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty God giveth them understanding. That's inspiration. That's God breathed into you. He inspired into you the, the truth of the Word of God. That's what he did. He moved. Uh, holy men of God moved as they, as they, as they uh, were... They were moved by the Holy Spirit. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost, it says in the verse. Okay, so so that's inspiration. And just to clarify the difference, preservation, preservation then is God's promise to preserve and to keep his word for man. 
God makes some promises that he's going to keep his word. So we'll go back to first, first Peter this time. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, there's that seed, that corruptible seed, but of incorruptible implication by the incorruptible seed, by the word of God. So the, so uh, you're preserved, you and I, I mentioned this last week and the week before, you and I who are believers in Christ, who are saved, who have, who have received Christ as Savior, you're preserved. You are preserved forever to life. And so if, you, if he can preserve you, he can preserve his word. Okay, so the internal Bible evidence of the authority of Scripture is very strong. And we, we don't have time to go through everything uh, in this little module of, of lessons. But we know, uh, according to Second Peter, that the, 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 the Scripture is, more, is a more sure word. Uh, Peter, actually, remember when Peter wrote in, in, uh, in chapter... In, Second Peter chapter one, verses six to sixteen to twenty-one. He was writing. He was describing his time on Mount uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter seventeen, verse verse one to five. So he wrote about what he saw, and he's and all he's doing is communicating that this is the evidence of what I saw because I saw it happen. Um, it is exalted. Uh, above the name of God in Nehemiah, or in Nehemiah chapter nine, so that's how much the the authority of Scripture is important. God says, "My word is more important than my name." God says, "My word is more important than my name." Uh, and then Paul, if you look at Romans chapter nine verse seventeen, real quick, you'll see that Paul refers to, or he substitutes the word Scripture for the name God. Romans chapter. 9 verse 27 9 Romans 9 17 for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh even for this same purpose have I raised thee up now back in the Old Testament who was talking to Pharaoh not not, not Moses but God but but Paul says oh it wasn't God it was the scriptures so he substituted that's he's, he's putting them right up there with God himself the word and God are equivalent, and we've got other verses. We don't have. I don't want to take the time to go to all of these verses because I want to make sure we we make some progress in getting through these notes. But you can look at the verses. Uh, I picked out some of the I think that are key verses for each one of these points. Um, but I would encourage you to go back and read all of those verses yourself. Um, Let's do one more in that about God exalting his name above himself. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, so the name is important, but the word of God is more important. Um, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. We'll do one more. Nehemiah 5, 1. I'm sorry, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, 5. 
Then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel, Bani and Hashbed, Shia and Sherebiah, Hodijah, Sheba, and Pimthan, I'm not good at these names, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So his name is important, but his, but his word is more important. Okay. So we're gonna no two there's two there's like I said there's two there's two seeds there's two there's two texts there's two lines so let's take a look at them and see how they work out so um, the two lines we'll start with the origin of the true line which was the Antioch this is what we can say about them I think this is all in your notes right okay good so this is where they were first called Christians in Antioch. They were first deacons were found in Acts chapter 6. The first preachers and teachers were in Acts chapter 13. First missionary trip was Acts chapter 13. Antioch of Syria is the model church for our New Testament church as the gospel goes west and up around into Europe and around the world. Antioch was the model church. It was the church. It was the catalyst church. And what, would, what, what, kind of, what was produced from the Antiochian church? Well, what, what I would call the fruit of the true of the true line. And so we have we have a list there. So we have the responsible for establishing churches all throughout Europe and Asia. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 17 where it says that, the, the, that, that they turned the world upside down, Ephesus, Corinth, Thessalonica, Rome, Tyra, 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 and so many others. Local independent missionary churches. The results is an unbroken line of common, ordinary, saved people throughout Asia, Europe and Asia. And then here's some of the names of those people. Uh, you get to, you get all of this in church history, which I'm not going to go through today. But you have the Novatians, the Hussites, the Mennonites, the Nestorians, the Albigenses, the Brethren, the Paulicians, Waldensians, Anabaptists, Bogomiles, Moravians, and Baptists, and so many others. There's just a whole list of them that that just fall through all of that. And if you go through church history, you get all of that in the church history class, which I'm not sure if they're going to be teaching that this year here on Wednesday nights. But again, that's another class in HBI. Okay, so we got the origin and the fruit of the true line. What about the origin of the false line of the Bible? So, um, as we said before, they were first mentioned in Acts chapter 6 when they were disputing of Stephen. In Acts chapter 18, they had, there's false doctrine teach, taught there by, the, by, these, by this line. In Acts chapter 27, in Acts chapter 28, um, uh, Alexandria to Italy, it just spreads. The uh, the ship that takes Paul to Rome and his eventual death was from Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt was the center of heathen education and philosophy, which got its start from the Greeks in 100 B.C. And their fruit, their fruit that they that they produced, Alexandria, Egypt was always had a bad connotation in the Bible. We've talked about that. The Dark Ages, the Inquisitions, the millions of Christians martyred, the first persecutions against Christians began in 251 A.D. and continued in almost 100 years, in, influenced by Alexandria. Um, by this time, there were 85 translations of the Bible just in, 60, in 90 years that Alexandria produced in some way. Nine, and, and within 90 years, they produced over 85 different translations. No, no language changes that fast, but they were making Bibles left and right, you know, re rewriting their scripture. Um, the text of the uh, true line of the Bible, the text of the true line, it was written in Koine Greek, at least in the, at least the, the New Testament was. That was a common language spoken by everybody. 
It was circulated, read, marked on, copied out, wore over, wore out, wore out quickly. Uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but then they added the New Testament in Greek, and so that put the whole Bible together. And the thing about the important about they used their Bible. They used their Bible a lot to study. Not so much in so when we we'll talk about um, the uh, what's called manuscript evidence, the um, the fragments of the of the of the Bibles that are available to be dug out of the ground or found in a basement someplace or whatever. Um, those Bibles didn't get used much. I don't know about you, but I write in my Bible. I put notes in my Bible. I've had to have my cover replaced because my Bible was worn out. It was falling apart. Julie's was the same way. Um, you won't find a Bible that's that's of the, very seldom anyway, uh, that's of the, the modern line of Bibles that have been used up that much, like a, like a King James Bible has been used. Uh, Bibles of the true line. Now, I was going to bring these these uh, placards, but I didn't, I forgot to. I was actually in a hurry trying to get out of the house. But these pictures that are in this, in, on these slides, um, they're pretty good. They got a lot of information. You'd have to have them in here to read them. So I'm not going to try to read all of this there, but uh, the tracing the two lines of the Bible. The first, the first English Bible produced was was produced in 1382 by this man here. Uh, uh, his name was Wycliffe. He was referred to as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Um, he was the father of English of of the English language, the modern English language today. Uh, so, if you go back and study English languages itself not not bible but just english you have basically the english the way, the way we kind of talk today then you had mid you had uh, middle english lang- uh, time frame and then you had early english uh, nobody talks early nobody talks middle english um, but he basically helped us help the, the english speaking people transition to a more of a, a more of a modern language that we have today so he he was uh, the first one to print the bible uh, uh, in uh, in English, he didn't do it in bulk or anything. He 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 wanted to have a Bible in English. The Catholic Church hated him so much that they killed him. Or after he died, he died in 1382. Um, but they dug him up in 1428. They dug his grave up. They opened up his grave. They bur- they took his body out. They burned his body, and then they threw it on on the, in the river and let it drown. But he was already dead. But that's how much they hated him. They wanted to take him out of the ground, burn him up, and then drown him. At least symbolically, they were doing that. The following him is a guy named Tyndale, um, William Tyndale. He's the first English work on on a printing press. So uh, Wycliffe wrote it out by hand in English. Tyndale was the first one to print it on a printing press. He did the complete New Testament and part of the Old Testament. He died before he finished the Old Testament. You guys remember, you know, I don't know if you know the history of all the kings of England, but you probably have heard of Henry VIII. Henry VIII banned uh, Tyndale. He, caught, he had him strangled. He had him burned in 1536 He was and had him executed. That was Henry VIII. That's what, that's, that's what he did to Tyndale. 
as he was burning, as he was on the, on the, on the, you know, on the fire pit burning, he cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And he did. God did that, and God answered that prayer, and he did. Following Tyndale's Bible was, was uh, uh, Coverdale's Bible. That was the first complete Bible in English. So Tyndale didn't finish the Bible, so Coverdale came in and basically finished the work. After that, and uh, a few years later, was uh, Matthew's Bible. Uh, this was Tyndale's Old and New Testament along with Coverdale's Old Testament. Uh, and they were licensed to do this by Henry VIII. So Henry VIII wanted to kill Tyndale for doing a Bible. Tyndale prayed for him as he was dying. He heard, God heard the prayer, changed Henry's heart. Henry said, okay, you guys can work on a new Bible. That's an incredibly amazing thing to happen. Um, it's called the Matthew's Bible, but not because it's anything to do with the book of Matthew. It's, it's because the guy that actually completed this work, was his, his real name was John Rogers, but he, he worked under a, a, a pseudonym name called uh, Thomas Matthews. Um, now, even though he was licensed by Henry, shortly after Henry VIII died, you remember hearing Queen Bloody, Bloody Queen Mary? Bloody Queen Mary had had uh, Matthew or uh, John Rogers burned at the stake as well. She actually had over 300 people killed because of their faith in the Word of God. She had over 300 people killed, either either burned them or had their heads removed or something. So following Matthew's Bible was the Coverdale Bible. I think that's what that says. Is that what that says? It's up there. Okay. I can't read it. Anyway, so so the Coverdale's Bible was a revision of Matthew's Bible and a revision of Coverdale's Bible, uh, and the two of them. And he, so this was actually referred to as the Great Bible because it was big. It was like big Bible. Uh, and it was it was available. It was uh, it was known in the Great Bible because it was big, but it was actually attached to the podium at the church, and anybody could go in and read it. It was the first Bible to use the phrase "appointed to be used in the churches." Appointed to be used in the churches. Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of, Bishop of Canterbury, and he allowed it to happen. And he was burned in March of 1556 for his part in allowing the Great Bible to be produced. And, to, and allow anybody that could read have access to the Bible. So he, so he would allow you to have your Bible on your lap right now, but people that wanted him dead would not want you to have the Bible. And then we come to the Geneva Bible. Now I'm going through these because there's a, there's a point to this, and I'll get to it in just a minute. The Geneva Bible was called the People's Bible. Uh, during the time of the Reformation, it uh, the Reformation is growing, and Mary is killing people, burning them at the stake, cutting their heads off, and so on. So men were were fleeing England as as quickly as they could, and many of them went to Geneva, um, Switzerland. Uh, and uh, John Calvin was uh, was there, and he was establishing a a, a, a safety uh, place for people that are fleeing because of religious persecution. Now, the Geneva Bible is the first translation um, 
is a new translation from the Greek and the Hebrew. It's also referred to as they give them they give Bibles names sometimes because of, of something in, in, that's in the in the verse or in, in a portion of the scripture. So this is called the um, the breaches Bible because in Genesis chapter three verse seven it said that they sewed fig leaves and made breaches, you know, like shorts, breeches. Uh, this was a strongly popular and strongly pro, uh, pro- Protestant uh, view of the Bible. Uh, this is the Bible that Shakespeare got all of his words from when Shakespeare wrote his plays. And he, you know, if you've ever tried to read a Shakespearean play, a lot of people think the King James Bible is, is Shakespearean in its way it's worded with the thee and the thou and all that. And uh, actually, Shakespeare used the Geneva Bible's wording to write a lot of his plays. Uh, John Bunyan used used this as he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He he, he used the Geneva Bible. Uh, this is the Bible. The Geneva Bible is the Bible that went to the New World on the Mayflower. It's the first to have verses, section, and columns. It's the first to be mass printed. It's the first to use a Roman type. Um, it's it's the first to use maps and study aids. And following that is the, is called the Bishop's Bible in 1565, and it's a revision of the Great Bible. It was commissioned uh, to uh, to remove Calvinistic marginal notes. So John Calvin had a lot of notes on it, like only certain people could get saved. So that was Calvinist. That's Calvinistic teaching. So they wanted to remove that. It's called the Bishop's Bible because that's about the only people that use it was the bishops. It wasn't a very popular Bible. The 1602 edition was used by the King James translators in a, as a reference material to, to create the, the King James Bible, which brings us to the King James Bible in 1611. Uh, James IV of Scotland uh, became the James of the First of England. So you guys probably ever wonder why, why they call it the United Kingdom? Because James was a king of Scotland and then became the king of England and united both of those together. So England and Scotland are one kingdom because James was king over both. So he, he, he ruled over both of them. Um, United, uh, the United Kingdoms of Scotland and England were under his control. Uh, during a meeting at the Hampton Court, they, they came together to discuss how to make a, a, a better Bible uh, and the, get rid of the Puritans and the Reformers and and try to be a just a pure Bible, no carbon, no no teaching notes in it, no Calvinistic notes in it, no, no none of that kind of stuff, just strictly translated. And uh, so King James took the opportunity to commission a new Bible to be produced with no marginal notes. He commissioned, and this is really interesting how this happened. He commissioned fifty four men to work in six groups, uh, working in three different locations to tr- translate the Bible. So group A, B, and C, it was for the sake of time. Each one of them had six groups in three different locations, A, B, and C, and the six groups. So A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2, lifetime. And each one of them would take a portion of the scripture and translate it. And then they would give it to the other group and say, test my work. And then so it just got passed around from all of these groups until everybody came to, yeah, this is a... a, um, uh, consensus on that's the right word that goes in that verse, and uh, and so uh, that's how the King James Bible came to came to be. 
if we have time next week, I have a whole other section I'd like to expand on that part of the King James Bible if I can. If we don't have time, that's all you get tonight. Sorry. Uh, the text of the ant of the false line. Origen gets te- the text out of Antioch. What he does is Origen takes the text that was in the Antioch and he be- and he brings it to Ad- Alexander and he changes it to meet his ideas. Remember, I told you he took some verses out. He makes actually not just two verses or two changes. He made fifty thousand changes to the text that was in Antioch. When he took it to Alexandria, he made fifty thousand changes to the text, changing words, rewriting the verse removing a verse, adding stuff, changing things around, restructuring it all, uh, 50,000 changes. That's an incredibly a lot. That's a, that's a huge amount of changes uh, in, the, in the Bible. He leaves, like I said, whole verses out. He removes words that don't support his philosophical Greek philosophy ideas. He added books like the Apocrypha. By the year 400 A.D., the Roman, Council, the Roman Catholic Church is formed, and now he's working for them, and he's putting Bibles together for them. Uh, by 540 A.D., the translation of Jerome's Latin Vulgate from Origen's manuscripts was produced, which include the Apocrypha. You don't have an Apocrypha in your Bible today, and that's why, one of the reasons why. This is the Bible of the Dark Ages, when the Catholic Church marched through history for the next thousand years, killing people that were not Catholics and didn't want to be a Catholic. The Bibles are the false line. So here's just a list of the false, some of them. This, like I told you, there's probably hundreds of them. But here's a few of them. The Douay Reims, that's a Catholic Bible called the Douay and the Reims. Those are two universities that worked on their translation to put it together. So we call it the Douay Reims Bible. The Revised Version that came in 1881. The American Standard Version came in 1901. The Revised Standard Version, so you got the American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version that came in 1952. The New World Translation in 1960. The New English Bible in 1961. The New American Standard Version in 1963. The Living Bible in 1966. The Good News Bible in 1966. The New International Version in 1978. That's one of the most popular Bibles in the world, even today, outside of the King James Bible, is the NIV. And then you have the New King James Version, which is a slightly changed uh, text of the King James Version. That was 1982. So that's just, how many is that? What, 10, 12? But there's more than that. There's a lot more Bibles than that. And uh, so I'm just going to mention some of the men that of the of the true line. I've given you some of their names already, but just as a review of their names. John Wycliffe, uh, the first English translation of the, of the Bible. Martin Luther, um, uh, he was involved in... in, in um, motivating people, not so much doing the translation work, but he motivated people to look at the Word and see, is the Word really teaching me what they what the church says they're teaching? Because that's where, that's where Martin Luther was at. He's like, what you're teaching, Catholic Church, isn't matching what the Bible says. So he challenged them. He challenged the church about what they were teaching. Then you got the Hussites. They, were, they, were, they believed in freedom of preaching, um, the Moravian Church, the Evangelical Christian Communion, the Zinzendorf uh, group that formed a Moravian colony, and so on. Uh, beliefs of the true line, we're going to compare some of their the false line here in just a moment. But this is what you get from the Bible. The Bible is the absolute Word of God. 
adult salvation by blood of by the blood of Christ alone, accepting Christ as Savior, rejecting infant baptism, premillennial in their in their doctrine, eternal security for the believer, you're preserved, separation of church and state. That's all taught by the beliefs of the true line. That the whole idea of separation of church and state didn't come from government; it came from the church. So don't let anybody fool you that that's a that's a government thing. It's not. It's a church thing. We don't want the government involved in our business. We'd rather not have them involved in our business. The men of the false line, just to mention a couple of those, yeah, Philo, he attempted to synthesize Greek philosophy and Jewish faith. Basically, he took whatever the Greek philosophy was and Jewish teaching of the Old Testament, put them together and tried to blend something and make something come out of it that was good, and it never did. Pantanius, he was a Gnostic pagan. He changed the Old Testament and the New Testament. He taught uh, at the school in Alexandria. He, he was a mess. Clement, he claimed Plato's ideas were with those. He, he combined them with, with what Christ taught. Uh, Origen, he synthesized the philosophy of the Greeks with, with Christianity. All of these guys just kind of, they just kept mixing stuff up in, in the best way that they could, that they, they thought it was. Isusibus, he delivered the Origins Bible to Constantine. Constantine uh, himself, uh, he was a Roman emperor. He, was he supposedly was sympathetic to Christianity. Don't don't be fooled by that. He didn't he didn't become a Christian and then win the win the win the war. He didn't. That's not what happened to him. He just thought that would be an advantage on over him if he would if he would pretend like he was a Christian, which he did. And then we have Augustine. He claimed that God transferred Israel's promises to the Roman Catholic Church. That's called, uh, um, what is that called now? I just had it there. It was gone. Um, replacement theology. That actually comes from Augustine all the way back uh, 300, 400 A.D. This is some of their beliefs. They believe in baptism for salvation. They believe that the Old Testament is not true. They believe that Genesis 1 to 11 is a myth. They did not believe. They don't believe that Jesus Christ resurrected. They don't believe in the resur- in the restoration. They do believe, and we should re- say that they do believe in the restoration of Satan. How many of you believe that Satan can be restored, restored? No, God's got a place for him. It's in Revelation. It's called the the, the Lake of Fire. Um, Greek wise men were inspired. This is what they teach: that Jesus Christ was not God. This is what you get out of the modern text Bibles, things like this. That you don't because the verses don't line up to teach that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, all of these beliefs came from Pantanius, Clement, and Origen, and and they're, and they're mixing with with Greek philosophy. Okay, so let's talk about how did we, how did we get the Bible? How how did we, how was it preserved? This is a, this is a little bit of a process. I've, I've got to go through some how it was done in the Old Testament, and how it's done today, so you can see a pattern. Any questions, anything so far? Okay, good. Okay, so from the beginning of the discussion of preservation, it is understood that in God's care and providence over humanity, uh, he has not preserved for us any of the original manuscripts. So we have a Bible here. Uh, I have a lot of notes that I wrote with my hand, with my pen, my hand, my pen. These are original notes. These little yellow tabs here, these are original. This is not original. 
This is, this is reproduced billions of times now, probably, from 1611. This is just here. I mean, you want it, you want it, you can have it. Doesn't have much on it for you, but it does for me. But it says this is a manuscript. This is an original. Moses is original. Paul's original. We don't have access to them. There are no originals. If you go to any church website and look and see what they say about in their about this is what we believe and look up what that church believes about the Bible. If they say we believe that the Bible was pure in the original or preserved in the original, if they say in the original, they don't believe in the King James Bible. Even if they use the King James Bible, they don't believe it's preserved. They don't believe it's accurate. They don't believe it's exact because they're looking for something that's original that we do not have. Nobody has the originals. There are no originals. If you wrote a letter when you were 10 years old to your, your, high, your, to your you know, middle school sweetheart, you wrote a letter. If she kept that letter for 20 years, great. But could she keep it for 2,000 years? No. It wouldn't. I mean, that, that paper would fall apart. It would be gone. It would be completely gone. There would be no original. But if she had maybe wrote, copied it down someplace, that would be a copy. It's not the same thing as an original. We don't have the originals. Nobody has the original. When they say in the originals, they don't know what well, they either don't know what they're talking about or they don't understand. You do not have access to the original documents. We do not have access to them. The letters that Paul wrote, we don't have access to. We have copies of them, old copies, very old copies, but we don't have the original, the actual what Paul wrote on. We don't have it. Not preserved for us in any original manuscript, either the Old Testament or the New Testament. But we must, but we must maintain that God, who gave the Scriptures, who works all things out for the counsel of His, of his own will, has exercised a remarkable care over His Word, preserving what He wants us to have in all ages in the state of essential purity. So let me kind of clarify what I'm just saying there. Basically, we, I believe, I hope you believe, um, if you don't, maybe by the time we finish this session, that you will, not this, this module, that you will believe that God, in the counsel of his will, and in the power of his own will, he exercised remarkable care to make sure that whoever he used to write the Bible, to preserve it, to make copies of it, to keep it, is what he wanted, and no matter what year, no matter how old, no matter what age, no matter what... Uh, anything, no matter condition, it's in the it's in the state of purity that he wanted you to have. It's not just we're thinking Bible is pure. It's what God wanted you to have, so that you know that when you open the King James Bible up and you read it, you're reading what God wanted you to have. You can be assured that you're not reading about you're not reading some man's errors or some man's opinion or some man's um, false teaching that he's trying to convey it false concept to you, you know that you have what God wanted you to have. It's, it's essential. It's pure. And he's enabled it to accomplish the purpose for which he gave it. Why did God give his word anyway? Why did God give his word? To, so that you could know him. That's what the Bible is for. So you can know him and what he has said and what he wants you to do. It's inconceivable that the sovereign God who was pleased to give his word, Jesus, as a vital and necessary instrument of the salvation of his people, that he would permit his word 
to become completely marred and destroyed and corrupted in its transmission and unable to accomplish what it's, its ordained end. It's inconceivable that God can't keep his word from the time it was written until the time you put, you bought your first Bible or were given your first Bible if it was a gift. It's inconceivable that God would not want to make sure that what you were given or what you acquired wasn't exactly what he wanted you to have. How could you even love a God or care about a God or listen to a God that you don't believe what he's saying is what he wants you to hear? That's how important it is to me anyway, and I hope it will become as as important to you in the same way. So as surely as we accept that he is God, we would expect to find him exercising a singular care in the preservation of his written revelation. I expect God to preserve his Bible. I expect him to because I expect him to preserve me. Paul said something really cool. He said that I am committed to, him, to, to God my salvation. He didn't say it that way, but I don't take the time to turn to the passage. But he basically says, I am committed to, I'm committing my life to God because of who God is or to Christ, to, uh, to God through Christ. I'm holding God accountable, actually, for, for my, my faith in, his, in my salvation. I'm holding him accountable. If, I don't, if, I, if I'm not going to be saved at the end of my life, me and God will have to talk. Because he promised me in his word that he's going to keep me, that I will be saved forever, and I have eternal life. It's a gift, it says. So that, that's strong, but I want you to be that. That's how strong I want you to be. That's how strong I want this church to be about the Bible, about the word of God. Do you believe that this book is everything that it claims to be? I hope you do. God has preserved the scriptures in the condition of essential purity, and the Hebrew text of the Old Old Testament has survived thousands of years, yet is substantially and remarkably in a pure form. We'll talk more about that in here, either if we don't don't get done tonight, then then tomorrow night, or next week, I should say. Among the existing manuscripts, now, manuscript is not the actual, uh, um, well, the existing manuscripts that we have are copies of the original. They're not the original. None of them are the original, but we are copies of them. And so anyway, um, so how did we get to How did copies happen? Let me just kind of give you some verses here. First off, the Old Testament. The Old Testament was initially preserved by the Levitical priests. So we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter uh, I'll just read it because I have it in my notes. I won't take the time to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24 to 26. It says, And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of the law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. So the Old Testament Le- Levitical priests were responsible for protecting and, prese- and, and preserving the books that Moses wrote. The Old Testament was subsequently preserved by the priests who were scribes, like Ezra. You know, Ezra's, Ezra, his, his, not so much his official title, but he was referred to as, the, as a ready scribe. He was a ready scribe. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10 to 11, uh, Ezra 7, 10 to 11, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, 
and to teach it in Israel, statutes and judgments. Now this is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even the scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes in Israel. So he made a copy of that letter. The one that uh, Artaxerxes gave Ezra, he made a copy of it. You read it, and when you read the book of Ezra, you're reading that letter. So he's preserved all of that. So first by the Levitical priest, then by the scribes. In fact, well, I'll get to it. I don't know if I'll get to it tonight. But the last point on the Old Testament is the Old Testament is presently preserved, currently, today, presently preserved by the Jew. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. Now, they're commanded. They don't do a good job, I don't think, sometimes, but they are commanded to keep it. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, What advantage then hath the Jew, or a prophet is there of circumcision, much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God committed the, the, the Old Testament to, to them to keep it. The Jews had detailed procedures as well for how they copied the Old Testament from one person to the next. They had detailed procedures. And you need to understand that the next time somebody says, how can you believe the Bible that was written thousands of years ago, copied hundreds of times, and the men who did the writing and the copying made mistakes, just like you and I do. I made mistakes when I copy out the Bible. I'm, but, but this is they had rules, and these rules and processes were important. So let me just read you a few of them. I don't think, yeah, there, there's a, there they are. The first one. A roll must be written on skins of clean animals. You can't just, so they use leather to write on as, as, a, as, as their writing material. It must be prepared for use by a Jew. You can't be a Gentile and do this. It must be fastened together by strings from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns. So let's just call this piece of paper a skin. Every skin had to have so many columns in it. Every one had to be exactly the same number of columns. <clears throat> Every skin must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex or the entire uh, uh, book that they're working on. The length of each column must be 48 to 60 characters, or six, I'm sorry, 48 to 60 lines. The length of the line must be 30 letters. So every letter, every line had to have 30 letters. So you know what? You write it out and then you count it. You write it out, and then you count it. You write. Then you give it to somebody else, and they would count it. Oh, you missed a letter. And they'd throw that away, start over again. That's how important it was to get through exactly the same. A whole copy must be, uh, must be lined. If three words are written without a line, it's worthless. Ink must be black, prepared according to a special recipe. All author, in, an authorized copy must be the exemplar. I'm not sure exactly what that means right now. I don't remember. Uh, no word, not even a letter, can be written from memory. So you may have a verse memorized and you can write it out, but that that was elite, that wasn't allowed. You actually had to look, write, look, write, look, write. Every word had to be that way. Then you had to get the right number of letters, right number of columns, and you, and or that paper that 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 skin of an animal was tossed out because it wasn't any good anymore. Let's see. Um, okay, so between every letter, there must be a space of a hair or a thread width. Between every new section, there must be a space of nine letters. Because they didn't, they didn't write, you know, like paragraph forms like you and I write today. They just kept writing, just continually writing. You know, until they get to the end, they go back, start another line, they'll write. If there's, a, if there's 
a break or like a paragraph mark or something, they might leave a space, but then they would keep writing. Between every book, there must be three lines. The fifth book of Moses must end exactly with a line. It had to end exactly with a line. Um, the copyist, the person who's doing the work, must sit in full Jewish uh, uh, priestly attire. The copyist must have just washed his whole body, so you had to take a bath before you could go to work. Um, the copyist must not write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. He must wipe his pen before writing the name. He must wash himself again before he writes the name of the Lord. And should a king address him while writing the name, he must ignore the king. Sorry, king, I'm busy. I'm writing right now. The new copy was examined with the original, with the original or immediately compared. If one, was if one letter was incorrect, the whole copy was rejected. Now, if that's the, the criteria for copying the Bible, I don't think we have to worry about, well, somebody made an error. Somebody, a copyist error, that's what is commonly referred to as a copyist error. I don't think that happened. I just don't know. You, unless somebody, I mean, how, with all of the checks and balances and stuff, how could you make a mistake and let it get beyond being checked? I don't think you can. But the New Testament, the New Testament, the New Testament is very similar, follows a very similar pattern. The New Testament was initially preserved by the Holy Spirit. According to John chapter 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it to you. So the first one is the Holy Spirit. Next is the priesthood of believers. That is you guys, the priesthood of believers. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Commit that to your tr commit that to which is keep that which is committed to your trust. What's committed to your trust? The Bible is. The church has been committed to keeping the Word of God. That's why I told you in the past, and I've said before, why we have a Bible publishing ministry because we take seriously in this church why um, we are responsible for making sure the Bible is produced and, get, and put out. Uh, so most of the believers of the first century they were Jewish converts. So they pretty much followed the practice that they already did. It wasn't like, like, oh, you're you're a, a new a new believer, so now this you have to learn this process. They were already say, they were already Jewish doing this. Now they're just now they're Christians doing it, and they would take Paul's letter and they would do what to Paul's letter what they were doing to Moses' writing, the same type of thing. Second Peter three fifteen, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved beloved Peter. Also, according to the wisdom giveth unto, giveth unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they are unlearned and unstable rests, as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. There, that passage there, he's referring to Paul's writings as being the other, uh, other scriptures. And they're keeping them. And then the third thing, the New Testament will eventually preserve or was eventually preserved by, this, by the scribes of the Greek-speaking church. So the priesthood was responsible, um, the believers. Now the church has got that task. So believers and churches, they go hand in hand, but we're just going to keep the same task. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're responsible for that, not just, not just anybody. Last, the New Testament is presently preserved in existing manuscripts. So I'm going to show you some manuscripts. I hope this picture comes out good. Okay, first off, there's 5,800 individual fragments of what we would call Greek manuscripts. These, these are pieces of copied material that have been found, dug up, put in a, a museum someplace around the world. 5,800 of them. Ancient versions, 9,300 various languages. Latin manuscripts is over 10,000. This is, this is how we know. We compare all of this stuff, and it's all the same, so we know that that's what the verse says. So this is what a fragment looks like. And actually, I thought I made that black, but I didn't. So what that says at the bottom, because you probably can't read that very well, it says P52 is the oldest New Testament manuscript. So the thing that's on your left, that's, that's a piece of manuscript. Uh, it's the oldest piece of manuscript in, that's in, 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 the, in the world. It's three and a half by two and a half inches. It contains scripts from the book of John. From the book of John. The next, right next to it is, is, uh, is um, called P49. It's a 10 by 8 inch document. It's about 30 pages, including parts of the old, oldest example of the book of Mark. And then P1 next to it is a 6 by 6 inch uh, document containing parts of Matthew. Now, there's fragments in that are broken apart in there that are missing. But you take all of that, you look at what's written on there, then you take some other document that's, that's also Matthew or Mark, and you put things together and you compare, and then that's how they have, that's how they come, that's how they've arrived at a translation for the Bible. And then the last one up there is P46. It's probably one of the oldest existent um, around. It's one. It's, it contains most of Paul's letters. Um, so that would be that bigger document on the on your right side. So all of those things, this is the, there's 5,800 of these pieces like that on the left, and bigger stuff like that on the right, and all of them are have they contain the Word of God, and all they do is they, they somebody meticulously compared this one with that one with this one with that one with this one with that one and they say yep this is this is what the verse says yeah i'm sorry um the the one on the right i have a between 175 and 225 ad i don't have a date for the others um I probably had a date for something, something in another note someplace else, but for this I didn't have it. Then there's some other. Not only those are the actual like a copy. So that so so the one on the right on your right, that's uh, Paul's contains most of Paul's letters. So somebody copied Paul's letters, put them in that little bundle there, and kept it. And you know who it was. We don't. I don't know who, how, where it was found. I don't know. I don't know what all the books are because I haven't taken the time to, to dig into all of that. Um, but those things are where we end up with our text that we have today. And 
and uh, that's probably in Greek. So they took the Greek, they translated it into English uh, to give us the English Bible. There's some additional methods as well. Um, so there's there's Greek manuscripts we looked at. There's there's uh, ancient versions which I mentioned, Latin manuscripts. And then there's quotations from early church fathers. Now I don't know about you, but you probably have seen somebody post a verse on Facebook. You ever check their work? You do. Some people said yes. Well, I don't. I just like okay, whatever. I just but. See, you, when you compare that to your Bible, you're checking their work. You're, com- you're making sure that, that's a, that they, worded, worded, they wrote it out correctly. That's all these were doing. We're taking somebody's quotation and comparing it with the text to make sure it's right. So quotations, uh, and not only that, but what's called a lectionary, which are Bible study lessons, like all my notes. I got verses in my notes. So I'm hoping that I typed them in correctly. So, you know, that's another way. Okay, so like 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 to 18. I have those passages listed here. So somebody get out their Bible and check and see. Yep, that looks good. So that's, that's that. yep, that's the correct verse. That's checking that type of work. The overwhelming majority of the key, of, or 95% of all the 500,800 plus the 9,300 plus the 10,000 plus all this other stuff, 95% of all of the existing manuscript evidence agree with the text of your Bible, which we have translated from what's called the Textus Receptus. Um, is that up there? There we go. The Textus Receptus. That's the Latin phrase. Textus Receptus is the Latin phrase for received text. Remember I told you, when you received it, you got it from God. You received the text from God. This is what God wanted you to have is in this book. It's not in any of those others like the NIV, the ASV, the RSV and all that. It's not in there. How do I know? Because when I compare this one to that one, I see errors. How do I know there are errors? Because I believe this is correct. So I have to have a reference. I have to have to start. Remember we talked about the first night, there's some some uh, assumptions that we start off with that this that the, the King James Bible is correct. Okay, let me see where we're at here. We didn't get as far as I was hoping. I know it's terrible. Okay. So let me talk about real quick rise of some critical texts in modern versions. So um Frederick von Tischendorf, he lived in the eighteen hundreds. He was a German uh, professor and uh, critic of the Bible. Uh, he was a professor of theology, and he was traveling and visiting around different places in the Middle East, and he went to a monastery in the Sinai Desert, and, in, and he went to the monastery of, of St. Catherine. And supposedly it was built at the foot of Mount Sinai. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was actually, it, it was supposedly built there, but it was actually built on the site of a fort constructed by uh, an emperor in 530 A.D., it, it held at one time 300, 300 to 400 monks. And while he was visiting this this uh, this monastery, he found some Alexandrian Greek manuscripts dated back about 350 A.D. that were being that were destined to be used to fuel the fires 
of the monks that were there, they were taking these manuscripts and burning them to make to to keep their fire going. When he realized what he had there, he 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 talked him into not burning any more of them. Uh, this manuscript is what we call the Codex Sinaiticus. There were forty copies left that that he he was able to rescue, and the word Codex simply means a handwritten page bound together as, as to form a book. It's believed that this is one of the 50 copies of the Bible commissioned by Emperor Constantine and completed by Eusebius, which is a whole other topic we're not going to get into this week. Uh, so soon after he was uh, he discovered that, I'm going someplace with this, so I'm going to take a little bit of time to get to it. So soon after that, another dis- another discovery was made, uh, very similar to the Sinaiticus. It's called Sinaiticus because it was found in Sinai. That's where they get the name. Um, but in, but somebody was in the in the Vatican, and they found another document that was very similar, almost a duplicate of the Sinaiticus, and they call it the Vaticanus. So Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, these two documents, uh, were dated approximately about the same time. Um, without regard to origins of text or anything like that, they thought that they were better because they were older. They were older than some of those texts that I showed you earlier. Um, but these, if you remember, I mentioned a guy, two guys, at the, the first week I mentioned two guys named Westcott and Hort. Okay, so Westcott and Hort took these two documents, the the city, the uh, Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, they took those and they created a, a Greek text that became the United, United Bible Society Greek text that all modern text Bibles are printed from. So these two books, these two texts here, they weren't texts of the King James Bible or anything right. They were, they were completely mistaken. Let me give you some examples. Sinaiticus leaves out 4,000 words from the gospel books alone. Not the whole Bible, just the Gospels, the four Gospels. They leave out over 4,000 words, adds 1,000 words, changes the reading in another 1,500 places, adds six new books to the Bible, whole books they added. Contains our the earliest copy of the Septuagint, which I'll mention here real quick before we end. The Vaticanus left out 1,000 sentences and added 500 words, changed words around 2,000 times, added 17 and 17,000 times it differed. differed. The Vaticanus had 17,000 differences than the Sinaiticus did. And I hope you make sure I'm clear with that. The Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus differed by 17,000 places. But they use these two to create the United Bible Society Greek text, which most of the modern Bibles are made out of. So they started off with errors. If you start with errors, you inject errors. You start with purity, you inject purity. Okay, I mentioned the Sinaiticus, I mean the Septuagint. Let me just meet that, because some people have asked me, what is the Septuagint? It is the Greek translation of the entire Bible. Because the Old Testament is in Hebrew, the New Testament is in Greek. The Septuagint, somebody wrote the whole Bible in Greek. They call it uh, the Septuagint, Septu- Sept meaning 70. Um, 
which is supposed to be how many men translated that into Greek. The earliest complete example we have of the 70 or the Septuagint is preserved in the Codex Aleph and B, uh, which would be the Sedianicus and the, and the Vaticanus. So basically the Septuagint was the, was the, the start of the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. The, the important thing about those, those big fancy words is that that's, the, that's the, the, the root source of all modern text Bibles. They came, almost every, every one of them came from the United Bible Society Greek text, which came from the Sidianicus Vaticanus Septuagint line as a base. Westcott and Hort used those to create a text to, to translate the Bible, but they used the Sidianicus, the Vaticanus, and the Septuagint to create that. So we're starting with, with corrupt text, ending up with corrupt text. Okay. Um, I really wish we had time to get into show, show you some of the false text, but I just don't have a beautiful example. Come back next week. We definitely will get into that. I will show you in that Greek text how they made mistakes. I have, I have, I have pages of the Greek text that will show you of how they made the mistakes. And uh, we'll see how we go next week. Any questions? Okay, well, let's pray and we'll be out of here. Father in heaven, Lord.